So there I was, I was uh, flipping through Netflix, and I chose to watch a comedy special uh, by a well-known comedian. And so I turned it on, and I was actually pleasantly surprised because the show starts with him, with his entourage behind the stage, and they're kind of getting pepped up, you know, uh, for the show. And right before they go on, they huddle together and they pray. And it shows it on that. I was like, whoa, this is really kind of cool. And he's praying, and he's praying for a good show and for everything to go well. And he's in the evening, like, hints at, like, you know, you be kind of glorified in this. And then he steps on stage, and the first words he says are profanity and cursing, using the, name, the Lord's name in vain, and etc. And I go, whoa, wait a minute. There seems to be a disconnect here. There's a disconnect between what happened before and then when he stepped out on the stage. There's a, what he was claiming to believe did not seem to line up with what actually he was saying. And I was not that surprised by that because there's disconnects between how, what people believe and what they do all around us. Whether it's the reality TV star who claims to know Jesus Christ, but yet then shows a life that is anything but following Christ to the whole world, or whether it's a politician who says they're a Christian, but then in their personal life, you see maybe that's not held that importantly, and in the policies they push forward, maybe they don't really believe that this should influence what we do in the government. We see this disconnect happening more and more. But we don't even have to look out there for that to be true, for we just have to look here inside ourselves, and we see that disconnect going on. That what we proclaim to believe, what we say we believe, does not line up or is not that connected sometimes to how we live and how we go about our business in this world. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be 100% perfect. We can't. We, can't, we, we're, we will stumble and we fail, and that's the beauty of the gospel because God saves us through Jesus Christ in spite of ourselves. But we know that there's something off than what we proclaim to believe does not line up with how we live. In fact, everyone knows that. That's why it's so hurtful when someone can call someone a hypocrite. The world knows what we believe should line up with how we live. There needs to be a connection between those, those two things. Well, in Genesis chapter 13 and 14, we see a living faith of Abraham being lived out in his life, where there is not that disconnect. Rather, there is that connection between what he professes to believe and how he goes about his life. And this can serve as an example and encouragement to us, as well as pointing us to how we can do that, which is through Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 13, and we'll read from there, starting in verse 1. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all he had, and Lot went with him into Negeb. Now Abraham, Abram, was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions 
were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flocks, livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Prezalites were dwelling in the, light, in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan, that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. This, thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled into the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give you to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for you, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamir, <coughs> which are at uh, Hebron, and built, there he built an altar to the Lord. Then in chapter 14, I'll just summarize the first part, mainly because there's a whole lot of names. But basically we get these four kings waging war against these five kings, and there's this great battle going on. And in this great battle, Lot, who happened to settle by Sodom, his side was defeated. And so the, the winners of this great battle took Lot and all of his possessions, and they're take, go, taking them back to their own area. And it says, starting in verse 13, it says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamir, the Amorite, brother of Eskar and Aner, these were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his, in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far, of Dan, as far as Dan. And he divided his force against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought all, back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his turn from the defeat of Kedemlamir uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the, valley, in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, a processor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Adam, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, professor, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Askel, and Memir take their share. What is going on here? We just see the snapshot of Abram's life as he's living with Lot, his nephew, and we see 
these kind of series of events, and we can ask, what does this matter? What, does, what can we take from this? And I think a huge thing we can take from this, what we want to take home from this, is that a living faith is a lived-out faith. That when we have a living faith, a, li- a faith for about who God is, a faith of Jesus Christ that changes who we are, and it's living and active in our life, it has to be lived out. It has to be expressed in what we do. It has to be shown in our life. And we see this through the example of Abram, that he trusted and believed in God. And because he trusted and believed in God, this faith that he had was expressed in all he did. And we can see this pattern set up again and again, a life that is following God, trusting God. And so we can learn from that. A living faith is a lived out. And so when we start in in, uh, Genesis chapter 13, we pick up the storyline that we had just finished in chapter 12. When Abram was in Egypt and he 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 actually had lost kind of his belief and he was uh, scared and so um, he was doing uh, wrong because he kind of pimped out his wife uh, to keep himself safe. It's a crazy story. If you were here last week, you can read that story. It's pretty crazy. But yet God preserved him and brought him out of Egypt. And so chapter 13 picks up on this. And it's so funny, Abram, Abram ends up right back to where he was before he went to Egypt. It says he comes back to this land, the same land that he built an altar right before he went to Egypt. And so he comes back here, and what does he do? Again, he calls upon the name of of the Lord. He rebuilds his altar. He's, it's almost like he's rededicating his life to God. He's renewing his trust and his faith with God. Because right before, he had demonstrated through his life that maybe it wasn't, his faith was not that strong and that he went away. But now he's right back where he was, and he's renewing that trust with God, calling on him once again. And I think we learn from this a need that we all have. And that is that no matter how far we stumble, no matter how far we wander away, no matter how big of a failure we feel we are or what we have done, we can always come back to God. And that is a truth that no matter what you've done, you can come back to God. And that we look at Abram and Abram seems to know that, but when us who stand on the other side of the cross look at who God is through Jesus Christ, we know how much more true this is for us. That Christ has paid for our sins, that on the cross all of our sins, past, present, and future, were poured out on Christ. And so we know that we can always come back to him and he stands there with open arms welcoming us into relationship once again with him. This is a truth we can learn because we all mess up. But yet we can let our pride get in the way of us coming back to him and admitting we mess up. But he's always there. Kind of think of it Kind of like in marriage. So if, you have been, if you're married, you know this factor, this, this truth, uh, you mess up. Uh, maybe your spouse lets you know you mess up more often than, than you think you've messed up. But you've messed up. And when we mess up, we have that choice. Do we seek amends? Do we seek to turn back into that relationship we care for? Do we seek to now address it and put it behind us? Or do we turn and let it fester? And again, it's with our relationship with God, when we mess up, 
we have to humble ourselves and admit, I'm not God. His ways are better than my ways. And we turn back to him and ask forgiveness and seek amends. And the great thing with him is we know that he's always there accepting us, forgiving us. And when you think about this, this answers a reality that we all probably struggle with. For we all have probably expressed either to ourselves or other people, that we feel like God is distant from us, that God's not listening to us anymore, or that maybe I'm not, I'm not in God's good gracious, whatever, whatever that means, and we feel distant from God. And the reality I've, we have to realize based off of this scripture and so many more is that, that God is always there. He, he loves us and he seeks us and he's, he, he has not turned his back on us, but we have turned our back on him. And that we need to come back to him in turn and, and admit our, our fault and have that confidence that because of Christ, he will receive us. That's what John talks about in 1 John 1, 9, is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We know that is true because he has done it in Jesus Christ and it points us to our Savior. A living faith is a lived out faith when we come and we repent and admit that we're wrong. But the story continues and Abraham's doing pretty well for himself. It says he's rich. He's rich in gold and silver. He's rich in livestock. He has all these these herds, and Lot is doing pretty well too, so well that they're living together and the land can't support them, and so their herdsmen start fighting and bickering over water rights and, and you know, probably grazing rights, and Abraham says, hey, Lot, let, we're kinsmen. We shouldn't be getting into uh, strife here, so let's, let's divide. Let's, you go one way, and I'll go the other way. Let's find land to support us. And so he says, hey, Lot, you get to pick. Pick wherever you want to go. If you go right, that's my right. That you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. He goes, it's totally in your, your call, Lot. You pick. And so Lot looks, and he picks. And he picks the Jordan Valley, and he journeys down there, and he settles by the city of Sodom, which is not a good choice eventually. If it's revealed. But he goes in there, and so Abram turns. And where does he turn? What's left? The land that God had already promised him. And so he goes into that land, and he settles. What's amazing about this, I think, is they're talking about land and they're looking at the land, and Abram has already been promised this land by God. But yet he doesn't look at Lot and say, well, this is mine already. The big man has already told me that, so you go that way. No, he, he trusts God. Actually, I think he trusts God's providence. That means God working even in Lot in unexpected ways that he knows that if God has promised it, it will be his. And so he has the freedom just to say, hey, Lot, you choose. And Lot chooses, and Abraham walks into his promise of this land. That he, he, uh, and so we see a great example again from Abraham, which really kind of points to Christ's example and how he lived out this perfectly, is that he did not think, go about life grasping at what he thought he was owed. How, if, like if I was in this situation, if I was Abraham, and I was in this land, I would say, well, this is already mine. God has given it to me. So Lot, you've got to go that way. But Abraham trusts God so much, he's like open-handed and says, Lot, you pick. Because I trust that God is going to give me what he's promised he's going to give me. 
And how often in our lives do we walk around and we grasp and we cling to and we look out for ourselves like, like Abraham did when he was in Egypt and, he, and we focus on those things rather than focus on where we truly get our identity and where we truly find fulfillment, which is in God through Jesus Christ and him alone. This is the attitude we're, we're called to have the same attitude that Jesus had in Philippians 2 when it says, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. That we're not to look at what we have and, and the promises of God and it's grasped on them for our own sake, but yet trust God enough in what he has promised to live with an open hand, knowing that if God wants me to have that, it's going to work that for me, and he's going to give me what he has promised this. One uh, commentator put it like this, when we truly believe the promises that are ours in Christ, when we truly understand and believe that, we're, that we are seated right now in his heavenly places, when we understand that all things are ours in Christ, we will cease our grasping. It's either that we truly understand who we are in Christ. We can live like Abraham kind of provides a snapshot, but also we can do that through Christ who did it perfectly for us, that we don't grasp anymore and look out only for us, but we follow and trust with God, which means maybe we should evaluate how we deal with conflict. Do we follow God in that conflict? Do we grasp what is ours, or do we trust in God being transformed by Christ, knowing that all the promises are us, ours, through Jesus Christ. Because our faith even changes our attitudes in the midst of conflict. Because we have Christ, and he gives us everything we need. A living faith is a lived-out faith. But then, they, but then God talks to Abram. He chose the land. He gets he walking into the land that God has already promised him. And then God basically talks to Abram and says, hey, look upon your land. He goes, look northward, look southward, look to the west, look to the east. All of this is yours. If you want a contemporary analogy that Lane gave me, it's like the Lion King. When Mufasa took Simba up to the rock and says, all this area, all the land where the light touches, it is yours. But a better example is the Bible where God says, North, south, west, east, all of this is the land I've given you, not just to you, but your offspring forever. And this is a great, this is a, a interesting thing because God is like taking Abraham on a tour of the promised land. He says, come on, Abram, let me show you this. This is yours. I promised you this, and now it is yours. Do you see this? Look upon this, and your offspring will be living here, and they'll be just as, as, as much as the dust of the earth, that no one can count them. Like you can imagine Abram walking this land, and God's promises are ringing in his ears as he is looking at the land, that the promise of the land is coming true. And so the promise of the offspring has to be true as well. The promise of God ring in his ears as he looks upon how God is working that in his life. And that is true for us as well because God's promises are still true. 
We who stand on the other side of the cross have all these promises and know that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. In that the reality is that we who stand in Jesus Christ are, are partakers of these same promises he made to Abram. That when it talks about Abram's offspring, we're included in that because we are spiritual descendants of Abram. That we, are, we look at him as our spiritual father, that we worship the same God and we cry and we are saved in the same way by, by, by our faith through Jesus, uh, through God's grace. And so we know that the promises of God are made real in our life as well. And so what does this mean for us when we read how God took Abram on a tour of the promised land? Well, maybe we need to take more tours often of the promises of God. Just as God took Abram and showed him the promises coming true, so we can open up the word of God and see the promises of God. And as we read them, they can ring in our ears as we look upon our life and see the promises of God coming true in our lives. How he saved us, how he pulled us from the dominion of darkness, how he's given us new life in Christ, how he has a plan and purpose for us. We see these promises coming true and they ring in our ears again and again as we set out to walk as he's called us to walk and live with him. A living faith is a lived out faith. But then in chapter 14, we see this battle going on between these kings. And then we see Abram's response. And Abram is a different person than he was in Genesis 12. If you remember in Genesis 12, he was scared of the Egyptians. He was afraid they are going to do wrong by him. They are afraid he was going to, they were going to hurt him. All because he had a beautiful wife. And so he did despicable things because of that. But also now we get to Genesis 14, and there's a war going on, and his nephew's taken. And what does Abram say? Does he, is he scared? Is he afraid that these kings are going to hurt him? No, Austin, Abram says, to arms! You 318 men that are in my household, to arms! We're going back, and we're going to get my nephew. And we're going to get everything he had. And he charges into battle. That we see Abram is a man of action and that this faith is a, is a, is a uh, faith that is lived out in action. The amazing thing about that is the striking change in what happened to Abram. And how can we explain that? How did he change in just merely two chapters of Genesis? From someone who was scared of the Egyptians to someone who, who's willing to charge into battle to save kinsmen. Well, what changes us? Only God and our faith in God can change us. And so we see that Abram, again, was living out his faith because he trusted in God, and now he's realizing if God has promised these things to me, then nothing can defeat me, and I can charge into battle knowing he's got my back. And so he does that. He lives this out in action. And we see how that means our faith needs to be lived out. 
That real living faith is a lived out faith that we know God, we know his promises, and we trust in those. And we don't look around our circumstances to judge how God is, is loving us, but we look to his word and we look to the truth and know that he's loving us. And that faith needs to be lived out. It's not just an intellectual thing in our minds. It's not just an emotional response in our hearts, but it's a whole bodied exercise as we seek to follow God in all of our life. That no matter where we go, our faith is expressed. That is, if in our family, we express our faith and organize our family around our faith. That when we go to work, we work according to our faith, honoring God and seeking to please him. When we go and hang out and play with our friends, we do the same thing that nowhere in our life is withheld from our faith because our faith is all of who we are. It works out in all of who we are and how we live in this life. It changes how we talk. It changes how we interact with people. It changes how we think. It changes how we love. It changes everything about us because it's lived out that we are people of action as we seek to follow God in all that we do. A living faith is a lived-out faith. When Abram trusts God and he goes to battle with his 318 men, he's victorious. He wins. He rescues his, his nephew. He brings back his nephew's possessions. And then we get this interesting little story where all of a sudden there's a priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek who brings wine and bread and blesses Abram. And we see this, and it's very interesting that we see this Melchizedek blessing Abram, and maybe it's just as a fulfillment of that promise God made Abram in Genesis 12, that all who bless you will be blessed, and that you'll be a blessing to the world. And so this is kind of a fulfillment as Melchizedek, who knows God, is blessing Abram because he knows God is using Abram. And Abram honors this person, this Melchizedek, because he's a priest of the Most High God. And how does he honor him? He gives him 10%, a tithe of his spoils. He says, this is yours to be used by you to honor God. And it's interesting because some people argue that Genesis 13 is the first instance we see Abram described as wealthy, as he's rich in livestock. And then right after this, we see him giving that richness that he gains through battle back to the Lord and saying, it's yours, acknowledging that all is God's. And then we got this weird request by the king of Sodom, who basically says, hey, let's enter into a deal. How about you give me these things and you can keep those things? And Abram responds, no, I'm not taking anything from you because my provision, my trust is solely in God I don't want anyone to be claiming that they made me rich. Only God has done that. So he responds in this. There's a statement that his provision is only in God. We see how Abram responds to Melchizedek, that he honors God and he trusts God, that he's giving him his wealth. But also we see how he responds to the other king, that he does not want to enter his relationship because he's honoring and trusting God's provision and his provision alone. Which makes us ask, how do we trust? And do we trust in God's provision? A living faith trusts in God to provide and see us through. A living faith is a lived-out faith. We also need to take a closer look at this guy, Melchizedek. Not just because it's a fun name to say. His name literally means king of righteousness. 
And he's from, he's the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. The name means peace. And Salem is the town that will become Jerusalem. And so, and he's also described not only as a king, but the priest of God, the most high. And so he knows who God is and he honors him. And this guy is honored by Abraham. And he's mentioned here and he seems to come out of the blue in the narrative. And we have to ask why. Because how Abram honors Melchizedek shows that Abram is totally aware that he only had victory because of God. How Abram honors Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High, shows that he knows that he can only follow and be who he is because of God's grace working in his life. That he understands he's under God's grace. And so Melchizedek as a priest blesses Abraham because it points to the ultimate blessing we all need through the ultimate priest who is Jesus Christ. For when we look at Melchizedek, He's mentioned really only two other times in the whole Bible. And that is Psalm 110, when David is penning a psalm, and he's prophesizing, he says, there's going to be one who comes after me, who is my descendant, but yet he is also God, and he is going to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. David, through the Holy Spirit, is prophesizing that there's going to become someone who is going to be this ultimate priest we all need. And then in Hebrews 7 the author of Hebrews is taking that in Genesis and weaving together the scripture saying how Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of that promise. That he is the ultimate priest. As, we, as Bruce just read before we prayed, he is the high priest we need. He is a high priest that offers us before the throne of grace blameless and faultless. That he is a priest that can present us to God as one of his own. That he is a priest that can wipe away our sins and say, this, um, these are my people and this is who we long for. And so when we read the story of Melchizedek, we read into it all these things from the New Testament that we know are true in God's revelation. We see that this story is pointing to a greater reality, that Melchizedek is what we call a type of Christ, that we read this and it points to an ultimate fulfillment in our Lord and Savior. It points to the fact that there is coming a day when we realize our need, that we need a priest. We need someone who can offer himself for us so that we can enter into the presence of God. And Jesus Christ is that priest of the order Melchizedek. And so we know that and we trust in that and that we trust in that as being our hope that this is who we need, Jesus Christ. And so why we look at Abram and we can learn and say, yes, he lives out his faith and that's a great thing and we need to follow suit. That is not our hope. For if our hope was how hard I can follow, how well I could do, how well I could be obedient, we would all stumble and fell and die in misery. But our hope is that there is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, who offered himself as a sacrifice, who took all of our sin upon himself, who gave us all of his righteousness, who ushers us into the throne room of grace, who brings us into the family of God, who makes us a holy nation, a holy people, his people, and that is our hope. That in spite of ourself, in spite of our following and stumbling, we have a high priest who saves us. And we are blessed through him. And we're brought to God because of him. And because of that, we have a living faith that is in us. And a living faith is a lived out faith. So often we struggle within our own lives with that disconnect. 
that what we believe is not translated in how we live, how we speak, how we act with one another. And so what we need to is reconnect those two again and again. And we have everything we need from Christ to do so. For when you look at the testimony of the Bible, that God gives us our faith. God gives us a new life in Christ. That He has given us the Holy Spirit to walk in His ways. That He has given us the, the power to follow His ways. That He has given us this community of Christ to help us and sure us up. That He has given us everything we need for life in godliness, and we follow and trust as all given by God, and we follow Him. Not trusting in our own ability or in our own um, obedience, but trusting in our priest who intercedes for us day by day, moment by moment, calling us forward to live out the faith He's given us. So let's get busy living. He's given us that life to live. Join me in prayer.